Hello, and welcome to this Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about one of the wildest women in the West, Calamity Jane, all in under 30 minutes, give or take. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre Richard Prosh and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, but usually ride solo for these Speed Listen bonus installments. Today, however, I'm joined by the president of the Western Writers of America, Chris Entz, who's a documented expert on the wild women of the West, especially being one herself. Hi, Chris. Always good to talk with you. Hello. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be a part of your program. Thank you for asking. Before we start talking about Calamity Jane, tell me a little bit about your new book, The Lady and the Mountain Man, Isabella Bird, Rocky Mountain Jim, and Their Unlikely Friendship, which is due to be released August 1st. It is a true story of this amazing Victorian woman who, in 1873 in England, she's suffering from debilitating spinal problems, and just her health overall is just going downhill. Her doctors let her know that what she needs to do is take a trip abroad, and she's always wanted to go to the American West, always wanted to see the Rocky Mountains, and in particular, climb Long's Peak. So here you have this Victorian woman getting on a steamship to go across the ocean to get to Colorado. She stops in the Sandwich Islands first. She's in such poor health, though, that her spine is very weak, and she has to have a special cage fashioned around her neck to support her head. That's how weak her neck muscles are, can't support her head. And you have this woman in this kind of physical condition coming into the Wild West in 1873, single lady, a Victorian woman, very well-dressed, very well-spoken, who wants to climb Long's Peak. And so when she gets to Colorado, she is looking for someone to take her to the mountain. No one will do it for all the reasons that I just shared with you. She finally finds one gentleman who says, yeah, I'll take this job on. His name is Jim Nugent. He is this notorious mountain man. He's a renegade. He's an outlaw. He's had a scrape with a bear. He has one half of his face that's been torn off by this bear. He's missing an eye. He's a scoundrel, but he says he will take Isabella Bird to Long's Peak, and he does. And in route, the two of them fall in love. The story is not just about this amazing venture that the two of them had getting to this rough part of the Rocky Mountains. It's about the history of Estes Park, too, and about the British gentleman by the name of Dunraven, who owned a huge swath of Estes Park and make sure that everybody was taken out except the aristocratic British he would invite to go hunting there. And it just so happened that Jim Nugent's cabin and his homestead was right there at the opening of the Estes Park area where all the people from England could come. He stopped people from coming in, which caused problems with Dunraven. So the two of them, Isabella Bird and Jim Nugent, are traveling up Long's Peak. They not only have to endure a lot of the difficulty on the terrain, but they got bad guys chasing them too. It's quite an adventure. Sounds terrific. I'm really looking forward to reading it. It was a lot of fun to write. And Isabella Bird goes on in history to be one of the foremost authors about travel in different countries. She was in China quite a bit, and she wrote about that. She was in Pakistan and wrote about that. She just was this phenomenal world traveler and one of the first women to be inducted into the Royal National Geographic Society. Okay, I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was impressed too. And of all the women that I've written about in the history of my doing books about women of the American frontier, I miss her the most. She just was a wonderful person and I enjoyed writing about her. And I miss Jim Nugent too. Isn't that interesting that you say that? They're still there, but they're not actively involved in your life at this moment because you've stopped writing about them. 
I enjoyed getting to know them and reading about this amazing love story because it was a romance that was never realized physically, but the two of them did love one another. And it was just a pure romance, pure love, unchaste. It was a very romantic story, and I enjoyed getting to know those two people and uh, studying about that romance, too. So it was great, great fun. Romance is not exactly mm. something that you would associate with Calamity Jane. <laughs> In some respects, you're absolutely right, Paul. But one of the things I think is very dear about Clam, and one of the things that I absolutely agree with her on, Clam loved men. She thought that they were phenomenal creatures, and I agree wholeheartedly with her on that. I thought separating truth from fiction while researching a recent episode about Buffalo Bill was difficult. But reading about Calamity Jane, it's clear that separating truth from fiction is almost impossible. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. There's a wonderful old saying, legend remains victorious in spite of history. And nobody embodies that more than Calamity Jane. She was such a self-aware and self-made person, and she creates this unique personality. There's nobody else like her in the frontier. She was one of the earliest examples, I think, of quality marketing. She had a brand, and she knew exactly how to market her brand. If it wasn't actually happening, she made up what happened. Paul, even if she didn't make it up, what an incredible life this woman led. An incredible life. And it starts out very improvised and very hard. 1852 in Princeton, Missouri, one of seven children. She had six siblings and she was the oldest. So you're absolutely right. Her father was a gambler. Her mother was a former prostitute. There's really not a lot of stability in that family. No. So it isn't any wonder why Clam would create the history that she does. Who wants to really embrace the history that is? And before she was Calamity Jane, she was Martha Jane Canary, her birth name. That's true. She doesn't stay in Missouri very long because her father moved the kids to Virginia City, Montana, then Salt Lake, and then he dies, leaving 14-year-old right, right. Martha Jane Canary in charge of six siblings. Her mother dies shortly after they moved to Virginia City, Montana in 1865. Calam is 13 at that time. Her father is terribly despondent doesn't think he's going to be able to make a new life for himself at a place where he doesn't know anyone. I mean, he's there for the gold, decides that that's not something he wants to do and starts heading back to Missouri and then passes away in Salt Lake. And as you say, just leaves Clam in charge of these six other people. She ends up in Fort Bridger, Wyoming. And there's and nobody there to help. Absolutely no one there to help. And she's 14. What does she do to support this family of six? She finds out what there is to do because she goes from Fort Bridger to Piedmont, Wyoming. And it's while she's there that she really is employed doing a variety of things, one of which is prostitution. This is the interesting thing about her being a prostitute. I understand that's what she turned to because she was desperate. She tries to be a dishwasher and a cook and a waitress. She's a dance hall girl. Obviously, that's going to lead at some point to prostitution because she's got to survive. But she didn't remain a prostitute. She changed her lifestyle. She became an ox team driver. What woman goes out and becomes an ox team driver? She does something to get out of that lifestyle that she had to do out of desperation. Yeah, and that's what's so admirable about Calamity Jane is that she doesn't stay in the squalor in which she could. She redefines herself. Part of that redefining of herself is being able to make sure that her siblings have a home. And certainly at that time of the West in history, you had a lot of people coming West. 
they came with their children, but their children passed in route. And so they needed to have children with them, not only to love, but also to be able to help them work their mining claim or work their ranch or whatever business that they had going. They needed children. Clam was able to find homes for her brothers and sisters with some of these other folks who had lost their children coming west. And it's at that point she decides to seize the day and it becomes this amazing ox team driver, realizes that she's got a talent for it. It took a long time. It was a long route west coming from Missouri with her parents. It was about four or five months. And in route, she learns a lot about the country. She learns a lot about shooting. She learns a lot about trapping. She learns a lot about guns. She's able to employ all of those things that she has learned, which is going to fit very nicely in with being an ox team driver. So after her siblings are gone, she knows she's really going to come into her own as an ox team driver between at least 1868 and 1870. And then going from military post to military post, introducing herself and selling herself at that point as, yeah, I'm a woman, but I'm an amazing team driver and freight driver. You, I'm somebody that you want to hire. She's always looking for the main chance. Where does she get that? I'm a scout. <laughs> And they go, oh, you're a scout? You're also an ox team driver, but you're a scout. Oh, okay, we can employ you as a scout as well because we need scouts. Was she really a scout or did she just put herself in that position and run with it? I think back in 1870, she goes back to Virginia City and then she goes back to Wyoming. And at some point, she goes to Fort Russell where she wants to be introduced to Custer because she wants to be a part of the Apache Wars. She wants to be a scout. According to the Steubenville Herald newspaper, she does get an opportunity to be a scout. She works with General George R. Crook from Fort Russell. As he goes from Fort Russell to Arizona, she works with him as a scout during his time battling the Apache and Yavapai, Arizona in 1872. And this job as a scout provides one story for how she got her nickname. And don't you just absolutely love that story? I, I want to just do a little sidebar here and share something. For a number of years, I was friends with Doris Day and visited with Doris Day in her home in Carmel and sent her a copy of my book entitled Love Lessons from the Old West, in which there's a chapter in there about Calamity Jane and her relationship or so-called relationship with Hickok. And Doris Day was very impressed with that particular chapter, having played Calamity Jane in the film. And she mentioned to me that this story about Calamity Jane, how she got her name and working with General Crook as a scout, how she gets her name is she is working for a Captain John Egan. And if you remember in the movie, Calamity Jane, there's a John Egan in that movie too, who Calamity Jane is very much in love with. And while they're working as a scout, Egan is dispatched to deal with an uprising of Native Americans on his way back to camp. And while en route, he and the other soldiers are ambushed by Native Americans. Egan is shot and thrown from his ride. And Calamity Jane notices what happens. And without hesitation at all, she hurries back to rescue the officer. And she pulls him on her horse and brings him to safety. And once Egan is recovered from his ordeal, he then says, I'm going to name you Calamity Jane, the heroine of the plains. What a great story, right? Yeah, it is a wonderful story. And like I said, I mean, that ties in my Doris Day thing because they really do. It's a little bit more elaborated in the film, of course. But Calamity Jane goes back to get Danny, who has been thrown, and she brings him to safety. Yeah. It's amazing how motion pictures take a little bit of history and make it their own. And I think that Calamity would have been really pleased with that since that's the kind of method she employed her whole life. 
The other suggestion for her nickname isn't quite as flattering, and that was basically, if you pissed her off, you were courting calamity. (laughs) In other words, she was going to come down hard on you. And don't you think there was a little bit of truth to that, too? That's why I think that name has like a dual purpose here, because that's absolutely true. She was an incredible lush. I would imagine that to be the case, that you wouldn't want to cause her to be upset with you for any reason, because like there would be a calamity to pay. The world would come down around her and she would just charge through it as best she could. Yeah, I mean, that spirit that she had that pulled her out of the squalor that she was in after her siblings were taken, she employs that the rest of her life. It's her go-to move. She just is such a wonderful person in terms of what she can endure and what you can overcome and continue to overcome, as she did. Either way, it's a totally badass nickname. It sure is. I absolutely loved everything about her. I've written about her in three different books that I've done. She's out on a limb all the time. In 1873, she is now with some of the federal troops in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And she's dressed in this oversized uniform, and she's traveling around with these troops on patrol. And this party camped beside a stream one evening, and the soldiers decide they're going to take a swim before turning in for the night. And one of the officers strolling by the stream watches the enlisted men paddling happily in the water. And then he just suddenly gets a jolt because out of the bushes comes a naked Calamity Jane who jumps into the water with all these men. Um, (laughs) She was completely uninhibited. She was going to be who she was going to be. And no one was going to dictate to her what was proper and not proper. Today, that would be looked at in a different light. But you said she loves men. This is not an alternate lifestyle situation, despite the way she dresses like a man, despite all the male personas that she takes on, despite her disregard for anything feminine. She loves men, and that's who she is. Yeah, that is who she is. And there are times, though, that she would stand up for herself if anybody would suggest at all that she wasn't a woman. In 1872, she's at the Comic-Q Theater in Dodge City in Kansas. And she has a run-in with a gentleman there, a guy by the name of Darling Bob, who sees her in the crowd, and he's always trying to put somebody on the spot, and that's what he does to Calamity. He asks her in public to show everyone there her lingerie. She was stunned, and then she starts telling him, son of your business, I am a lady, what are you inferring here? And then ends up, after all of the statements about what a woman that she is, she ends up pulling out her six-shooter and, and shooting holes in his sombrero that he's wearing. I like it. That's an appropriate response. <laughs> I think so, too. She leaves the comic here demanding that the military give her an escort out of town, which they do. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> She's got moxie, right? Yeah, she does. She was always incredibly bold. Who are you to say that I'm not feminine enough? Here's how I'm going to answer that with a couple of bullets and then an escort out of town. Where does she first come in contact with Wild Bill Hickok? Hickok and Charlie Utter and she meet on the plains on the way to Deadwood because there's no information that would indicate the two of them were friends outside of that. They arrive in Deadwood at the same time. Hickok comes in with Charlie Utter in the latter part of July 1876 and Kalam is there with them. I'm sure she's heard of Hickok. She's enamored with Hickok. I'm sure Hickok has heard of Kalam. Here they are. They come into this rough and tumble town together. That's where you first find out that the two of them had any kind of association at all. At this point, Hickok is married to Agnes Lake. 
And he's very much in love with Agnes Lake. He is not going to step out of his marital bonds for Calamity Jane, for crying out loud. He's quite enamored with Agnes. He's glad he marries her. I mean, there's numerous love letters between he and Agnes at this particular time period when he is in Deadwood, always professing his love for her and how much he missed her. Calamity and Wild Bill are really not in one another's orbit for very long because Wild Bill and his other friends come into town at the end of July 1876 and Hickok is dead by August 2nd. It's interesting to me how all of these Wild West legends, Buffalo Bill, Wild Bill, Hickok, Calamity Jane, they all cross paths with each other at some point or other and had contact. Part of the legend is their associations. Yeah, and isn't that amazing? You'd think the West might not have been as big as we think it was. It's a small world. I imagine, too, these main characters that we're talking about, the Calamity Janes, the Hickoks, the Codys, the Custers, I'm sure they were in one another's orbit from one place to the next. They were larger than life. You couldn't help but either know them when they were just leaving or know them when you were just coming into town, that they were always somehow tied to one another in a variety of ways. And Calamity was loyal to them. She was loyal to Hickok. She was loyal to Buffalo Bill. She was always supportive of them in her way. And that speaks to the strong friendship and bonds that they had and respect for one another. Yeah, I don't know. I guess you can play that two ways. Yeah, Calamity was very loyal to her friends. I don't know so much that Hickok was a friend of hers as much as she got a kick out of telling everybody after he died that the two of them were lovers. Because dead men tell no tales. So how is Hickok going to refute that? But she liked that notoriety. And that, again, was her brand. Whatever she had to do to tie herself to whoever was out there that was very well known. You got to keep in mind, at this particular time, she's had a couple of dime store novels written about her. And those dime novels are the ones that a lot of the pioneers take with them when they're traveling west. And so they've read all about her. And a lot of it is stuff that she has made up. She never really did ride with Custer. She wasn't a scout with Custer. She could spin that because she was somewhere in the vicinity as Hickok from one time to the next. So it wasn't too far of a reach to say, oh, okay, I could see how that could happen. She was out there. She was at Fort Russell. Custer was at Fort Russell. No one was doing any historical checking. She could make up as much as she did, and it would add to her fame and certainly being tied to Hickok's fame immediately after he shot and all the publicity that was involved with that. Clam doesn't stop with just saying that they were lovers. She claims to have been the one who had the honor of capturing Jack McCall. She said she did it with a butcher's cleaver, having left her rifle at home. <laughs> She makes that statement in the Steubenville Herald on February 26, 1896. When she has this confrontation with McCall, she made him pass over the Great Divide hanging from a limb of a cottonwood tree. So she takes credit for that. She takes full credit for what happened to McCall. She wasn't going to miss a beat. If it was in the news and she was somewhere around in there, she was going to get herself tied to that. We know celebrities today that always seem to get themselves tied to whatever yes. is gone. Forrest Gump did it. He wasn't even trying. He was always wherever something was going on. She even supposedly writes her own autobiography. I've got to think it was ghosted, and she told a bunch of stories that were gathered together, and then it was published under her name. 
Yeah, I think that's an accurate depiction of what happened. I don't see Calamity ever sitting down with pen and paper and writing anything for a long period of time. I think Calamity had attention deficit disorder. I don't think that she could sit down for any length of time doing any one thing, except maybe driving a team. And then that's not going to be done without a bottle of whiskey as she's driving. I don't think that she penned her own autobiography as well. With all of her love for men and her time as a prostitute, what about children of Calamity Jane? There's the gray area. There are some that say, yes, she had a daughter. There are some reports that she was married to a gentleman by the name of Duncan Blackburn. He was a road agent and a stage robber. There was some talk that she was married to him. And some historians believe that Calamity helped him hold up three stages traveling from Cheyenne, Wyoming to Deadwood. There's also a report that she had a son with him. I don't know so much about that. You do hear often enough that she had a daughter and that that daughter was very real. There's one story that she couldn't afford to send her daughter to private school, and this was during the time that she was in Deadwood. And so she holds a fundraiser, and she raises this large sum of money and then gets drunk and spends most of it during the next day or so. That sounds like her, doesn't it? That sounds like something that she would have done. <laughs> it does. Whether um, she has a daughter or not, she says, I have a daughter that I can't send to private school. And so she makes this up and she does this fundraiser. It's not a fundraiser to send a imaginary daughter to private school. It's because she needs funds. Doesn't it sound like maybe Clam had just been told the story of Les Mis? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she just said, hey, that sounds good. I think I can appropriate that for my own life. She does go on to perform in Buffalo Bill's Wild West shows. She, a notorious drop by that point, and Cody has known her for years. This is in 1901. She's needing money, and he's not going to give her money outright, but he has her do a few appearances in his Wild West show at the Pan American Exposition in New York. He even bills her as the famous woman scout. Because she has name value. She has name value. And if anybody else in history knew how to work your brand, it was Cody, who then would help other people work their brand. Yeah, he knew that was going to bring audiences out to see her. And it did help. I mean, at that point, she's still drinking, still on a number of drinking binges. And, and eventually it costs her job with Cody. Now she's homeless and destitute. And once again, the legend is she ends up back in Montana working at another house of ill repute. The way that Calamity Jane has been portrayed in popular culture is so incredibly buried. From scatterbrained Doris Day to the character she plays in the television series Deadwood, this foul-mouthed, hard-bitten, hard woman. Where's the real Calamity Jane in all of this? I just don't know that we will ever know, and I think Calamity would be happy with us never knowing. She delighted in keeping people guessing. Yeah, I think so, because heroes get remembered, but legends never die. And so she is the legend that will never die. If we ever knew the real story of Calamity, it might take away all the mystique that we know about her right now, or think we know about her right now. So I think that she is very happy just being this enormous figure that no one can really ever figure out. This enigma. She, yeah, I think that she'd be very pleased with that. But even in death, she courts controversy because of where she's buried. Of Guys, course. in 1903, she's in her 50s, and her body was interred at Deadwood's Mount Moriah Cemetery next to Wild Bill Hickox. Yeah, isn't that amazing? He dies August 2nd, 1876. She dies August 1st, 1903. 
And yeah, and then says, I want to be buried by the love of my life, Hickok. And that's exactly where she's buried. You're right. Even to the point of death, she keeps it going. She keeps this persona of the legend and the idea that she's created for herself going. So many people attend her funeral, not just friends and acquaintances. It's a big turnout. Yeah. At that particular time, it was the largest funeral that Deadwood had ever seen. Mourners paraded past her casket in droves. And what was amazing about that particular scene was people were very upset because she was laying in state dressed in a white cotton dress. And they said it just didn't look natural. So as they walked by to see her lying in state, they placed six shooters in her hands. And the undertaker has to keep removing a variety of weapons that are placed on her person and keep yelling at the viewers to not disturb the body. But his pleas just go ignored. Then many of those people that were attending started cutting the locks of her hair off to keep as souvenirs. Her body was disturbed so much so that they had to build a wired cage over her corpse to prevent anybody else from doing anything like that. So she goes out. I think that she would have wanted. It really doesn't matter where the truth ends and fiction begins with Calamity Jane because so much of the American West is about the stories. And Calamity Jane was a huge story, no matter what the truth was. And still a huge story. Is that amazing? Here we are talking about her today. And why are we talking about her today? Because she is popular. Because she is still somebody that everybody wants to know about. And when you say, what can you tell me about the American frontier? Most people will mention Calamity Jane's name. Fascinating. Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk about Calamity Jane with me. Good luck on the new book. And you and I will talk again soon. We will. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful. Thanks for listening to this bonus Speedless and installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes, Six Gun Justice Speedless and installments, and Six Gun Justice conversations are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Till next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others. And remember, there are two theories to arguing with a wild woman of the West, and neither one works. Adios, I'm out of here. Let's ride.